0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar
1: Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, O'Reilly's Max Locum chats with award-winning author Pagan Kennedy about the art and science of serendipity, how people find, invent, and see opportunities nobody else sees, and why serendipity is actually a skill rather than just dumb luck. Enjoy the episode.
0: You have a presentation titled The Art and Science of Serendipity. How do you personally define serendipity?
1: I think it's really helpful to go back to the original definition of the word, which arose in a very whimsical, serendipitous way back in the 1700s. There was this English eccentric named Horace Walpole, who was fascinated with this fairy tale called the Three Princes of Serendip. And in this fairy tale, the Three Princes are sort of Sherlock Holmes-like detectives who have these amazing skills forensic skills. They can see clues that nobody else can see. And so Walpole was thinking about this and very delighted with this idea. So he came up with this word, serendipity. And in that original definition, um, Walpole really was talking about a skill, the ability to find what we're not looking for, especially really useful clues that lead to discoveries. And in Intervening, you know, couple of hundred years, we've the word has almost migrated to the opposite meaning where we just talk about kind of dumb luck, or you say serendipity and you think of a rom com movie, you know, and a (laughs) meat cute. (laughs) And I think um, there actually was one called serendipity. yeah. Yeah. Yes, there was, and um, I'm not against that meaning, but I think it's really useful to go back, especially in the age of big data, to go back to that original meaning Mm. and talk again about this skill.
0: So you mentioned something before. Do do you believe that serendipity simply happens, or can situations be created where serendipity occurs? It sounds like you're leaning more towards the second one.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that that definition, Walpole's original definition that gets at the skill involved... Mm is a really helpful one. And um, there's actually a researcher who I interviewed for my book, Sandra Ertelitz, who has a term she came up with. Um, She calls people who are really good at serendipity super encounters. And I love that term because it really gets at the skill involved in being able to hunt for patterns that nobody else can see.
0: So this is actually something that people can foster.
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, it also really comes out of the your kind of life situation as well. So a class of people who tend to be very um, good at finding, at inventing and seeing opportunities that nobody else sees are surgeons. And so I'd really emph- like to emphasize that this kind of problem solving or this kind of pattern finding is not just intellectualizing. It can be very emotional. So... Surgeons, when they have a problem, somebody dies and they stay up, you know, at three in the morning thinking about what went wrong with their tools. And it's that kind of worrying um, that is often involved in this kind of search for a pattern or an opportunity nobody else is seeing. Um, not just an intellectual process, but a highly emotional one where you're you're very worried. So it's it's, this kind of process might not be very good for your health, but it's very good for your creativity. Um, that kind of replay, not just noticing at the moment what's going wrong or what might be in the environment that nobody else is seeing, but going over it in your head and, and you know, thinking about alternative realities, like what if we had done this? What if we had done that? What, you know, what, what are the opportunities we're not finding?
0: It's interesting. So it's kind of like a postmortem of thinking yes. history, but a heightened Post, postmortem, yeah. not just a sort of factual one.
1: And also a postmortem that leads to a premortem. So thinking about, wow, that really went wrong, how do I not have that happen in the in the future? So, um a lot of the inventors who have who I've interviewed were people who actually physically suffered some kind of pain as a result of um, something going wrong. Um, one of my favorites was this guy, Jake Stapp, who was a tennis instructor in the 60s at a couple of camps for kids, where the kids would never pick up the tennis balls. <laughs> and the poor guy was picking up hundreds of them, his back was going out. So, literally, like, the, he was suffering from this problem. And that led him to kind of you might say, create a simulation theater in his mind, you know, where he was thinking of, could I do it this way? Could I do it that way? And eventually he came up with the idea of this wire basket that you put He did that? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, That that thing's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. uh, You know, (laughs) I I found that because my editors at the New York Times loved that idea and they said, find the guy, you know, and it took a really long time to find him. I had to hunt through the patent system and call all kinds of mm-hmm. people. And finally, I found him. He was, you know, 82 years old. And nobody had ever kind of bothered to look into that story before. But talking to him really was a revelation because he talked a lot about his dread of um, the next summer, you know, and how much that had influenced him.
0: So, he had a significant motivation <laughs> yes, to find yes, having skin,
1: really Having skin in the game can be very important. That's
0: interesting. Um... I think you touched on this a little bit, but how do you feel that a person's ability to observe in general factors into the serendipity that they experience? We talked about kind of these heightened senses, but just people who maybe have a higher sense of observation, do they experience more serendipity because of that?
1: Um, yeah. And again, as I mentioned, you know, there is this research by Sandra Ertelitz that is um, very intriguing where she had br- she studied 100 people or 100 plus people and really looked at their different styles when it came to um, searching in the unknown. And um, she saw that there are certain people who they almost assume that they're going to find something they're not looking for, and they work that into their into their um, project. You know, they just make room for what they're assuming they're going to find by bumping into it. And um, the, the other piece of it, again, is very emotional. These people love to forage. Mm. They're the kind of people where, you know, they would be happy to spend 10 hours, you know, looking at pictures of ants and, <laughs> or something, you know, and just <laughs> finding interesting factoids about ants or something and that eventually end up being useful.
0: That's fine. So they're just kind of delighted with the experience. Exactly. And the discovery. Now,
1: this, and Sanda was really great because she talked about the dark side of serendipity. Mm. This can go too far. Mm-hmm. As anybody who's fallen down the Twitter vortex knows, <laughs> you can be delighted by the random little popcorn of, you know, that you find on the internet. And that can be a hole that you fall into mm-hmm. of which otherwise known as ADD. Mm-hmm. So it's important right. not to go too far.
0: Wikipedia is particularly good yeah. for that. Oh, I can just yeah. click through to this. And yeah, that. interesting. Do we have any insights into what is happening physically, chemically, when aha moments occur?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of debate about that, and um, I did this column for nearly two years where I talked to inventors for the New York Times, and I began the column when I when I started. I would always ask people about their aha aha moment, and People would sort of be very ashamed that they hadn't had a really big aha often. They'd say, well, it was actually kind of a series of revelations or a series of clues that I put together and there wasn't really one big moment. Mm -hmm. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And the other thing I, observed just anecdotally is this tends to happen, you know, we think of serendipity or we think of connections happening when people are buzzing around and bumping into each other in hallways and stuff. But the big revelations tend to happen when people are alone. And I'm saying that anecdotally, but it's just the story I've heard from so many people And I think that makes sense because what you're really talking about is anomalous thinking. It's the opposite of groupthink. It's somebody coming up with an idea nobody else has ever had. So that's probably not something they're going to get from another person. It's something where they're interacting with stuff, you know, a chemical in a lab and you happen to eat a sandwich later and say... this tastes sweet, sure, but sure. and I didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's something here.
0: <laughs> so uh, switching gears a little bit, we have a lot of technology that seems to aspire to serendipity. Yeah. Your phone tries to give you exactly the right information at the right time. We've got smartwatches now that are really very much built around that same concept. Does that work, and do you feel that's actual serendipity, or is that kind of a false serendipity that's occurring
1: there? Well, I think there's a really interesting interplay between tools in the human mind and serendipity. So if you look at the history of science, you see when something like the telescope or the microscope appears, there are waves of discovery, because these tools have made things that were formerly invisible, visible. And when patterns that you couldn't see before become visible, of course, people smart people, creative people find those patterns um, and begin working with them. So I think that you know these data tools and the internet you know all these new tools that we've got, they are amazing because they make these patterns visible that we wouldn't be able to see before. but in the end they're tools and you've got to have a human mind at the other end of that tool and um, you've got to have somebody, you know, if if the tool throws up a really important anomaly or pattern, you've got to have a human being there who not only sees it, recognizes it, but also gets super excited about it mm-hmm. and defends it and explores it and figures, you know, and, and gets excited about a, an opportunity there.
0: Is that the ideal that you would anticipate for the relationship between technology and, uh, and humans as they're exploring serendipity? Does, does the tool have the ability to throw up the anomaly, but the human is actively looking for it. Would that be the best case scenario?
1: Yeah. And then of course, sometimes a tool throws up something we didn't expect. I think that happens to us every day, you know, when we're just on the internet cruising around and it throws something our way. And that makes you recognize there's something out there that's exciting to you and you kind of follow up on it. Um, So the tool can throw up things we don't expect in the same way our environment can in general, but the tool kind of gives us a greater reach.
0: In your research in your recent book, Inventology, you examine where inventions come from. Is there a shared characteristic among inventors and inventions? We touched on it a little bit before of perhaps high stress, perhaps uh, some isolation. Are, are there other things that you've seen? There?
1: I think one surprising thing to me was how much our life experience matters. Um, and again, I mentioned Jake Stapp, you know, the tennis instructor, but you see all kinds of people who have a framework from something they've experienced in their life or something they really care about. And so they seize on an opportunity in a way that maybe nobody else could, and they put that together. So a lot of, you know, I, I think of serendipity, there's sort of, I found several patterns of invention. And serendipity, I think of as backwards invention, because you find a solution, and then often you go looking for the problem. So it's when somebody, this solution is thrown up to them, you know, where they just notice something that's kind of looks like looks like a solution, but they don't know what it's good for. It takes that, the, the next step is for that person to really care and then know about the problem or go find the problem. Um, so often it, comes out of that ability to kind of put two and two together. So that can be really important. Seems like follow through is particularly important. Follow through and, you know, again, the emotional component of really caring. So say, um, I just did a piece on, um, for the Times, on Meg Crane, the inventor of the home pregnancy test. So she, in the 60s, sort of bumped into this technology that pharmaceuticals were making for doctors to test pregnancy in a new way. But she was kind of like Peggy Olson in Mad Men. She was like this very independent woman living in the village. And she said, hey, this could be adapted for women to use themselves, which was not a popular idea with her bosses. She had to really fight for that idea. And that's, again, what surprised me was how much people fought for these ideas that were really new and anomalous and weird sounding. And it was her ability to put together her own experience, of what she was seeing about how women were living, with this opportunity that really mattered.
0: Where do you think that fight comes from?
1: You know, so many inventors are just not motivated by money and mm. people who are love solving problems. And I think people get very excited it's like finding something on the street that's amazing and you just think how could how could nobody have seen this um i'm going to make something out of this you know that kind of uh, spirit of getting very excited about an opportunity and bringing it into the world
0: does expertise lead to innovation or is innovation a separate thing altogether
1: um you know, they're definitely related. And again, um, the expertise that may matter may not be the thing that you think of as your expertise. So, um, for instance, with Meg Crane, she, her expertise was sort of living in a woman's body mm. in the 1960s at this moment when women were questioning their role and how they felt about pregnancy and all of that. And so she really brought that to bear on this technical problem. Um, And I would say that also serendipity and diversity are tied together. Diversity is really important. So if we have a small priesthood of people who are solving problems, we're going to get a very limited library of solutions. Um, But the more people we bring in, the better, because we're drawing on more both problems and solution ideas. Um, and so we need people who come from every walk of life and every kind of experience background, you know, to contribute.
0: Uh, last question for you. What people yeah. or projects are you following?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, I have been just um, gotten a new gig as a contributing writer um, for the New York Times Opinion page, and that's given me the chance to write about just short takes on all kinds of things that interest me. So I have been writing about women and innovation, but I recently, last, last week, I published a piece about my own insomnia um, and my own attempts to create an insomnia machine <laughs> that would cure <laughs> myself. And every insomnia, uh, fellow insomniac came out of the woodwork And wrote me emails, and I want to thank all those lovely people who shared all of their solutions with me. Um, uh, So it's been that's been really fascinating to get all this feedback um, from these pieces and see all these. Now talk about a problem that motivates people. Yeah, yeah. You're
0: you're well on your way to serendipity. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Okay,
1: thanks so much. You can find me on Twitter at Jen Webb, Mac at Max Slocum, and Pagan at Pagan Kennedy. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.